Welcome to the Rooftop Podcast. Our topic today is answering the tap. The tap on the shoulder. There's a quote by Sir Winston Churchill that goes like this. To each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing, unique to them and fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. And again, that is by Sir Winston Churchill. And I follow that quote with this question to you. How many times over this past year did you receive that figurative tap on the shoulder? And how many times will that tap on the shoulder happen to you in 2022? How many times did you receive that tap on the shoulder this past year and you didn't answer it? How many times will that happen again in the coming year? This is a this is a New Year's Eve, a New Year's um, episode. Typically, my 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 topics and the things I talk about are they're somewhat contextual at a time base, but the idea is that they are universally applicable at any time of the year, and and that's certainly true of this episode, but. I gotta say, there there is something as I as I record this right now that that is uh, this week that falls in between Christmas and New Year. I, I don't know if you see it this way, but there's something about this week, and it always has been at least for as long as I can remember since I've retired nine years ago from the army. Um, <clears throat> this week between Christmas and New Year's, it, it feels metaphorically like I'm on top of. A mountain, a really, really high mountain with amazing vistas, and it's just a hell of a climb to get up there. It takes the better part of a year to get to the base of the mountain, and then to climb the mountain itself is a is a is a Herculean effort. And then the final ascent seems uh, pretty daunting as well. But then when you get to the top of that mountain, you're able to look back and see with clarity where you've been. You can look back and you can see the route you took. You can see the winds in the road and the trail. You can see where the trail disappears into thick underbrush and where there were obstacles and valleys and low points. You can see where you bumbled around in the woods on several nights and, and, and got lost your way. You can see where the open areas were and the, and the areas where walking was easier and lighter. But at the same time, there's also this unique ability to, to turn 180 degrees and in this beautiful spanning vista, see where you're going. You're able to see another ridge line, hazy off in the distance that is your destination or at least your next destination. And in between that ridge line and where you're sitting is, is a clear view or at least a more clear view of where you think you're going. And you can see potential obstacles. You can see 
more dense wooded areas. You can see valleys or rushing rivers or things that might trip you up. You can see areas where it might be easier to walk. And it's just one of those rare moments in thin air where you're able to sit and immerse and reflect in the context of a very involved journey that you've been on and you can see it and, and you can also see to some degree where you're going and, 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 and process that within the context of the journey you just completed. And I don't know about for you, but that's just how I feel about this week that falls between Christmas and New Year. It is, it is a time of reflection for me. It is a time to look back and assess the year. It is also a time to uh, look forward and to get some idea of what, from a goal-based uh, perspective, I would like to do. Now, I'm not talking about resolutions, Okay, just so we're clear, there are people who do resolutions, there are studies after study after study that show that resolutions, most people don't stick with them uh, when you just resolve yourself to change this way or that way. I'm talking about goals. I'm talking about goals that are on the pathway of my life, that are milestones, that are intermediate goals, that are aim points for me, and I build an entire year uh, of energy management around the achievement of those goals. And they nest within five, three, five, and 10-year goals as well. And I tell you all that because, you know, um, this is something I learned in the military, uh, but I didn't realize the science of it until really a few years ago, is just how much humans are goal-oriented creatures. We are meaning-seeking creatures. We assign meaning to everything that we do. And, you know, all mammals are goal-oriented creatures, but humans are the most goal-oriented creatures. We, once we have a goal in front of us, um, we click into, we lock into a mode that is pretty astounding. And sometimes the opportunities that present themselves around those goals are, are even more astounding. And that's really what this episode is about. This episode is, yes, it's about goals. It's about thinking about the year you've been in. It's about thinking about the year you're going into. But what I really want to, to get at here is the essence of opportunity. It is the, it, is, it is the way that opportunity often presents itself to us as humans. And I, I find it to be a, a fascinating reality. You know, if Professor James Clausen of Darden University says that leadership is the management of energy. And we know that humans are mostly energy. So leadership is the management of energy, yours and those around you. Then the purpose of this podcast is to talk about how you manage your energy to prepare for that figurative tap on the shoulder that Sir Winston Churchill told us about so many years ago. That, that moment, that moment in time that if you respond to that tap a certain way, it could be your finest hour. And we don't know, you know, that that's just the, that's the journey of life is we, you know, even as we look down into that path that we're going from our metaphorical mountain, we don't know what that journey is going to be like exactly. We don't know where that finest hour, if it even presents itself, will present itself. But it's our obligation, I believe, as high performers and certainly as rooftop leaders to prepare for that moment. Because when that moment comes, that moment is really not about you. That moment is about the people who you lead. That moment is about the people whom you serve, where you live, work, and play. 
You know, what separates a rooftop leader from other leaders is the fact that we focus, our, our metrics are around being re- relatable to people's pain and relevant to their goals. Relevant to the goals, like I just talked about earlier, that they have, that they've assigned to themselves, and then being relatable to the pain associated with those goals. When leaders do that, we create uh, a level of reciprocity, of connection, of psychological safety, where people will take action they otherwise wouldn't take. And what you find is this, this collective opportunity to do big things. But those taps on the shoulder are often the moments where we can rise to that greatest occasion. And another phrase for this tap on the shoulder is is what is a pivotal moment. Um, gold medal winning coach Jeff Spencer says that pivotal moments happen to each of us at least two to three times every year. And I think as we go into the next year, you can expect that same thing. You will have a pivotal moment two to three times tap you on the shoulder. But there are elements to that that are not like they play out in the movies. And if we're not ready for that tap on the shoulder, if we are not conditioned at a mindset, skill set, and tool set level, if we are just ambling along, if we're just bumbling along, if we're a pedestrian in life, the odds are that tap on the shoulder will pass us by. We will ignore it. We will brush it off as if it were an unwanted insect on our meandering journey to nowhere or to mediocrity. And, and, and that's my concern for our nation. It's my concern for parents. It's my concern for kids is that we have been conditioned as wards of the state almost for mediocrity to have our heads down in our devices or into Netflix or into 24 hour news cycle. Or, 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 or in a trance-like state of anger and fear, uh, mobilized by these divisionist leaders who would, who would polarize us from each other. And all of these distractions, we are, we are distracted beyond belief. And, and that's the enemy, right? The churn that you've heard me talk about so many times, the distraction, the disengagement, and the distrust that's out there, all of those things can keep us from feeling or hearing or absorbing that tap, that pivotal moment that presents itself, where our finest hour to make a difference in the lives of those around us by being more relevant to their goals and relatable to their pain just passes us by. Um, You know, the, the example for me, I always try to look at my own life. I always try to put my own life on display, particularly for this podcast. I find it to be actually helpful for me, perhaps maybe even a little bit selfishly, to be able to share with you in this forum, because I feel safe doing this, um, to just kind of analyze my own <clears throat> journey over this year with you and and look at my and look at my events and where I heard the tap, where I didn't hear the tap. And, and for me, the biggest tap on the shoulder, I think, unequivocally this year was the the pineapple was the collapse of Afghanistan and the emergence of this thing we called task force pineapple operation pineapple express um, what became frankly one of many 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 volunteer organizations who um, answered a call who who saw fit to attempt to honor a promise 
to ourselves, to our community, to our nation, but most importantly to our Afghan brothers and sisters who were wholesale abandoned by this particular presidential administration and, frankly, the institutional powers that should have been with them um, as this transition happened in Afghanistan. But it didn't, and it left. It was like all of these holes started to pop in the dam, and um, uh, a group of us ran to that dam and stuck our fingers in there in the darkness and tried to communicate to each other where new holes were popping and, and just hold the water back. That's really what it felt like. It, it, it did not feel um, organized. It, when, when, when my friend Nizam was in duress, um, and, and frankly being hunted by the Taliban in the early days of August, I was, not, I was not in a position to help him. That was what I felt like. I was not in a position to help him. I was not in a position to, to play a meaningful role in that. And I was frankly, I think if I look back on it now, I was probably avoiding it. I was, you know, casual about it. I was, you know, I cared and I, and I did care and I wanted to help him, but I felt like I've been out of the game for almost a decade. I had um, I had managed to put a good chunk of the war behind me to include a lot of the guilt that nearly caused me to take my life. I had managed to find some measure of peace. Um, my, my children were all grown. I was about to become an empty nester. My youngest son, Braden, was just moving into his apartment, and, and I was finally going to you know be there for a big moment <laughs> for one of my three boys. And I'll just be honest, like... I was in a point in my life in, in, in July, August, where I did not feel that tap on the shoulder at all. What I felt was, this sucks, this makes me angry, this should not be happening, but there's nothing I can do about it. You know, it's, there's nothing I can do, and it was really, I have to give props to James Meek, ABC investigative reporter, who is a friend of mine who did not feel that way. He was very, very, very involved with Nizam. He was calling him daily. He was texting him. He was rattling cages. He was talking to generals, anybody he could talk to, to get them to try and honor um, an SIV application that Nizam had had in for quite some time. And, you know, he was far, far qualified for someone who had served his country, who had put himself at risk and, and, and with the U.S. and, and, and uh, qualified for this special immigrant visa. And so James, contrary to me, had, had responded to Nizam's situation diligently, was myopically focused on it, and was really, really rattling cages, including mine. Um, and and I, I'm not exactly sure. I, I think it was the moment when Nizam said to me, to the effect, brother, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to die alone. And I thought about this young man who I had known for a decade, who was one of the bravest men I'd ever known, who had continued to fight in Afghanistan long after I retired, who had seen more combat and, and, and more engagements with the enemy than I could ever even imagine. And now he was alone in this apartment with his family his uncle was getting ready to kick him out. Um, he had no options. Um, he had no SIV. He had no way out. Nothing. And it was it was in that moment that that I felt this just wave of of anger and fear and frustration. Because I'll be straight with you, you know, one of the things that I've struggled with over the years is. Um, 
a lot of my role in Afghanistan was 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 controlling, planning, executing missions where my friends took a lot of risk, and I was doing that as an operations center director on a, on a couple of occasions as a task force commander in a Ruzgan province. But you know um, what I was really good at was planning and synchronizing and and organizing these missions and 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 maneuvering these multiple assets. And they were usually pretty successful, but also people died. And a lot of times um, they were my friends. And after a while, I tell you, when you're on the radio or you're managing a situation room and, you know, your friend gets wounded or your friend gets killed and it was your mission, it was your concept, it was your uh, asset that didn't get there fast enough, you know, it just, you start to kind of, at least I did, you start to kind of check out from that and you go cold to that. And that was how I felt with Nizam. Um, I did not want to ever in my life run another remote mission where one of my friend's life hung in the balance based on what I did or didn't do well. And that's what I felt the resentment for in that moment, in that tap on the shoulder moment when Nizam said that about dying alone because that's what I was afraid was going to happen. So to be perfectly honest with you, it was my fear. It was my fear. It was my fear of failing him. It was my fear of getting him killed. It was my fear of, of once again, another person uh, going down because of my inability to get it done the right way. And um, that fear had kept me on the sideline up until this point. But now it was no longer an option for me. Um, I knew what needed to be done. I knew that he, there was no way he was going to make it out. And, and I knew that if, if there was a chance for him to get out, that I, I could help with that because I had run remote operations. I had put these complex missions together. I had uh, managed complex personalities around the interagency, the private sector, um, flat communications and I and I had some experience with that not the most in the world but I had I had enough to be relevant to the problem and I think that's the point here I was you know it wasn't the superman theme playing it wasn't the rocky theme it was heavy heavy reluctance heavy heavy reluctance uh and an outright refusal to the call in the beginning but but then punctuated even when the decision was made with a degree of reluctance and I don't think that degree of reluctance ever went away. You know, I, I don't think that it ever went away. But but what we did get Nizam out. I, I want to make sure that every you know we did get Nizam out, and it was the work of some amazing people who did a hell of a lot more than I did. But I did manage to bring a team together. I managed to help put together a concept that would do it. I, I helped keep him calm, and we worked together as a small little team, and we got him out. And then we made a decision, I made a decision, uh, and this is important, because there was an inflection point after we got Nizam out where we kind of looked at each other and we said, now what? What do we do now? And it was clear at this point, chaos was even more in, in play. I mean, we're talking 21 August at this point, the airfield operation is still going, it's going full bore now. There's 30,000 people in this sea of flesh trying to get in and you know, my friends 
who had commandos and ANA special forces and interpreters and new friends that I had met in in the fray to get Nizam out were, were were frantically trying to help their partner, their family, their their the children they were the orphans they were working with find refuge, find a way out of this hell on earth. And at that point, I mean, I knew for me there was no it wasn't even a decision. You know, fuck it, man. I it's it's I'm in, you know. And it was I, I remember that for me it wasn't even that. I, I asked the little team who's in, who's out, and a couple of people had to step away. A couple of people said I was glad to help Nizam. I've got to get back to my J O B. A couple of people were actually still on active duty. One guy's in command. You know, Mullah Mike, he's like, I've got to get back to my job. I wish I could help more. But what remained was this small little contingent, even smaller than the five or six people we started with. And that's what we built, you know, Task Force Pineapple around. We we um, we created a signal room. I think James Meek named it Task Force Pineapple. And then we just started uh, on LinkedIn and other social media and people who were contacting me. Hey, I heard you got Nizam out. Um, can we work together? And we just started building a main room where we um, we welcomed in and we started to get a, a quick collective identity of who we were, you know, and we started to, as new people came in, I would do a little voice welcome to them and I would tell them, you know, welcome to the team. And and we started building this thing out. And, and I'll be honest with you guys, and I think you've heard me talk about this in other podcasts. Um, I was way out over my skis on this. You know, I, I was not... At no point, including now, did I ever feel like, oh, yeah, I'm the guy for this. <laughs> you know, I just didn't. And I don't think I've uh, many times in my life have I ever felt that way. But this tap on the shoulder that continued to grow and the aperture got bigger and bigger and bigger for what we were doing. Um, by the time the explosion happened on Kabul International Airfield at Abbey Gate by ISIS-K um, towards the end of August... You know, I think we had helped, I think we had helped get out probably around a thousand people directly, somewhere between 700 and a thousand. Um, I think that we indirectly, I certainly more than that, working with these other amazing groups that we worked with, like Dunkirk and Team America and the Valley Boys and those folks, uh, many, many more. Um, and, but then once that explosion went off, it was, okay, now what? Now it was very clear, no more airplanes, no more U.S. support, um, overtly anyway. Um, now, what about all these people who didn't get out? You know, what about what about my friend Arash's family? And, and what about the new families that we met along the way? They didn't make it out. We're going to do an end zone dance for the 1,000 we got or whatever and just leave them. Too bad, so sad. I mean, that's what it was sounding like from our government. And, and once again, you know, I, I just could not, I couldn't. Uh, walk away from that you know so that tap on the shoulder had now grown to a much deeper broader level um, of commitment and now we were talking about keeping people alive we were talking about getting people out on private charter planes we were talking about going on media and raising revenue because it was going to be a private sector effort I mean by the time it was all said and done as I'm as I'm recording this to you right now in December of 2021 like you know, we've got 6,000 people on a manifest that we're running humanitarian aid for, food, water, safe houses. We, we've raised probably close to $7 million. We've mobilized 
thousands of people to get involved in one form or another to include Go Ruck and Nine Line. Um, there's a book in the works around this with Simon and Schuster and perhaps even a film to, do, to tell the long form story so that history doesn't forget this abandonment uh, at an institutional leadership level of a partner force that happened and, and the magnificent leadership of volunteers who stepped in. But I, I will tell you with all those things, this was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. It really was. And in, in, in many cases, it still is. I mean, if I'm just being candid with you, like if, if I just break this down right now, as I sit on top of this mountain, mountain, looking back at where I've been and looking at where I'm going, I would tell you that this is the last thing I want to do. You know, um, I, I left, for example, the 24-hour news cycle several years ago because I just didn't like it. It just was not my cup of tea. Um, I felt like it was uh, it activated the left hemisphere of the brain way too much. It was it was a, it was dopamine uh, dispenser of just uh, polarized anger and fear, and I didn't like being a part of it. And then here I am, right back on the twenty four hour news cycle all the time, talking about Afghanistan, and sucked right back into that. You know, I left the army. I retired. I was a battalion commander select in the United States Army uh, as a special forces officer. It was not for a special forces battalion. Uh, the first time it was for a recruiting battalion, and, and then the next two command cycles, I was selected for what they call a, a, a MIT team, but it was a tactical command. And had I taken it, there's probably a good chance I would have made colonel and kept right on moving through the ranks, but um, I, I, I was done. I didn't like where the, the military was going. I certainly didn't like where the, where the military was going in Afghanistan, and I felt like I could ha have more effect on things at a strategic policy level on the outside than on the inside. Um, and and the, I tell you all that because, you know, I was not in any remote way interested in any of the things that have come with this pineapple journey other than, other than honoring the promise to a friend and honoring the promise to a group of people who, two groups of people, one, uh, the Afghan people, who I find them to be amazingly resilient, beautiful people, and then to the veteran community and the volunteer community who stepped up into the breach, um, I felt obligated to to do that. And then some sense of obligation to my nation in the absence of what our government was doing. Um, I get more resentful about that one every day because I feel like it's a wholesale institutional push-off. But it was, it was the last thing I wanted to do. And it still is. I mean, I have rooftop leadership to run. I have this podcast. I have the Hero's Journey, our nonprofit that helps warriors find their voice and tell their story. We have our film, Last Out, that basically just got put on ice. Um, we emptied our, our, our accounts at, at, at the Hero's Journey to keep things moving. We lost money at rooftop. And I'm not, look, I'm not complaining. I mean, my God, to think of what our Afghan brothers and sisters have gone through and continue to go through, to think of what so many combat veterans and Gold Star families have gone through. But I'm just being real with you on the context of this whole journey. It, to say I'm out over my skis, it's an understatement. But it doesn't mean I'm not doing it. It doesn't mean I'm not engaging it with wholesale exuberance and doing what I need to do. But I think one of the first things that we have to do when we think about that tap on the shoulder is to just recognize that the way it's going to manifest, the way it's going to show up is oftentimes not what we would think. It's not like we see in the movies. It's not some Rocky theme moment, you know, and, and, and it's oftentimes going to be 
different than what we expected. And it's going to play out different than what we expected. And it's going to ask things of us that we didn't, that we didn't count on or we don't want to pay. You know, I'll just give you a few traits of the pineapple pivotal moment that I think are universal singulars to you. Maybe you want to write these down. But as you think about, as you're sitting on your mountaintop now and you're looking back, reflecting on the year journey that you've made to the base of the mountain you're on and climbing that mountain and now you're able to look back and sit in that reflection and immerse in that journey and 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 literally you, the experiences you had bad good all of it are lived experiences you can feel them right now as you sit here listening to me and then you look forward at the same time how cool is that at this ridge line, this hazy ridge line of where you your goals are for the next year that nest in with your broader, longer-term goals, and you look at the terrain. You look at the woods, the valleys, the raging rivers, the wide-open fields with flowers. Like You can see all of that kind of in front of you for a, you know, for a moment. I, I want you to think about and perhaps even write down the traits of pivotal moments that I've learned and maybe these will serve you because I do, again, I believe they are universal singular moments that can serve. You know, one is that um, these pivotal moments are fleeting. They are, and maybe this is not the one to lead with, but I think it is. Um, they they come and go. You know, the moment where Nizam um, needed my help was a fleeting moment. If I had waited or screwed around much longer there's a good chance the team would not have been brought together. There's a good chance that um, he could have been killed. Now, that's not to say that I saved the day. No, it, it's simply saying that there was a period of time there where, you know, uh, it was a fleeting moment. Uh, these moments can also be, they can be presented as good, as, as really opportunity, like clear opportunities, and you see them for what they are. They can also be presented as catastrophes as tragedies. I mean, the collapse in Afghanistan, um, the, the, the loss of, um, friends that, you know, friends in duress. I mean, all of those things are, you know, are, are, were bad. They, 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 they weren't great things. Um, and, and I don't know, sometimes opportunities present themselves to us in pivotal moments as tragedies, as things that are less than desirable. And, can we see through that and stay in it long enough to find the good? Because oftentimes, and this is the third point about a pivotal moment, is they are often strategic in nature. You know, they have strategic value. I never in my wildest dreams did I think that by us helping Nizam, we would um, manifest a movement of people that got over a thousand people or close to a thousand people out that raised seven million dollars that 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 informed a nation on the Afghan situation through media that that raised a, a, a ton of money for for Afghan evacuation that kept six thousand people alive through the winter never not in a million years that we would be the the, the interim solution to the government's failure to lead. I mean, that, those are very, very strategic outcomes, but the reality is that's what happened and more, you know, and, and, and so, so pivotal moments, taps on the shoulder, they have the potential to be strategic and yet they are number four, they are subtle. They're, they're not going to just like, they're fleeting, 
They're subtle. They can be presented as good or bad. They're strategic in nature. And number five, um, everybody around you probably is going to step back in a pivotal moment. That's how you kind of know you're in one. I can remember with all of the stuff that was going on with Nizam, everybody for the most part smiled and said good luck and they had kind of this nervous laugh and then they stepped back. And then I find my, found myself standing there with a few people like James Meek and Mullah Mike and Kelsey, people who were you know nervously committed to doing it. And we just kind of shored each other up. We kind of held you know uh, held space for each other and we went forward you know at each other's shoulder. And, and so people around you will step back and you'll want to do the same, right? Because it feels overwhelming. Um, but the reality is people will step back. You'll want to do the same and it will feel overwhelming. It will feel daunting. It will feel too much. It'll feel like it's too much. Um, and finally, it can cost you things. You know, the, the traits of... Um, you know, the traits of these pivotal moments are that it can cost you. It can cost you. Like right now, it costs me money for my business. It costs me time with my family. I missed really my son moving into his apartment. Um, it cost my nonprofits, our film. We had to really delay things with Last Out. But guess what? Like if you're going to, I believe, uh, create movements, if you're going to play a bigger game, if you're going to be relevant to people's goals, if you're going to be a rooftop leader, and and be in, and really leverage purpose-based human connection to mobilize people to take action and create change in your community, your job, you know, your 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 nation. It will cost you. There's no way it's not going to cost you. I think that's part of the problem with our country today and the world in many ways. At the senior institutional leadership level, most of them are not willing to pay a cost. You see, most leaders today that I've encountered, they they are so focused on risk mitigation. And rip, frankly, not no, not risk mitigation, risk aversion. And the and the aversion to risk is to personal risk, to one's career, to one's status, to one's material possessions. And so you 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 know, no one's willing people aren't willing to pay that cost. Right? And, and the fact of the matter is to lead people to make an impact in the world, to be relevant and relatable. Again, the aim points of a rooftop leader, it will cost you. I don't care how I don't care if you are my friend Cody listening to this and you are, you know, at, at the highest level of a CEO or you are my friend uh Philip listening to this and you are a small business owner or all points in between. If you commit to leading people and you have to recommit to this because leadership is the management of energy, yours and then those around you. If you commit to leading people from a position of relevance and relatability, it will cost you. Make no mistake. And certainly a, a tap on the shoulder when a pivotal moment presents itself for you to lead in your finest hour, that's going to cost you. That's not a freebie, right? Um, and Bo Easton talks about this all the time, right? If you have to ask yourself as you're sitting on that mountain, what's this going to cost you? So here's some questions that I would love to pose to you um, as we wrap this um, New Year's themed podcast up about the tap on the shoulder, I'd like you to sit in your year on top of this mountain. Go somewhere quiet. Go to sacred space. Take a pad and a piece of paper. 
Um, declare some sacred time. Ask your spouse and your children to give you a little bit of space and and ref- and sit in that last year. Look back on that last year. Close your eyes. Do some good diaphragmatic breaths with an expanded belly on the inhale and squeeze the belly on the exhale. Do three to five of those. Get you in a nice parasympathetic state with your eyes closed. Maybe... Do what my friend Jean-Louis Rodrigue says to do. I have time. (laughs) Say that three times. And I'm not kidding. Like really settle into this exercise. And then just ask yourself the following questions. What moment from this year are you most proud of? And write about that. And just move the pen. Don't think it. Don't overthink it. Just for a few minutes. What moment? A moment. Not not an event. Not a, a product. A moment. We live in moments. So drop into, the, and, and if you'll do that, it'll get the tone going for this exercise the right way. Um, and again, the reason we're doing this exercise is to help you prepare for that pivotal moment that's going to tap you on the shoulder two to three times this year for your finest hour. The second thing is, I want you to reflect on a tap on the shoulder or a pivotal moment that you wished you had answered, but you didn't. Right, um, you know when when did opportunity tap you on the shoulder? And now looking back across that valley, you see ah, I should have answered that. Move the pin on that for a few minutes. Number three, when you think about 2022, or the year, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, the year that's coming up in front of you, what is it about it that's keeping you up at night? It could be good or bad. It could be, but there's something. If you're listening to this podcast, you are a high performer. You believe in purpose-based human connection. You believe in stretching yourself, getting out over those skis, facing resistance. When you think about the upcoming year, what is it that's keeping you up at night? Why are you laying in bed staring at the ceiling when other people are still asleep? What is it? Face it. Write it down. It could be one of the greatest moments of your life, one of your finest hours, one stroke of the pen away. Next, what will it look like when you raise your glass in toast one year from now? I found, I find that since the brain is a metaphorical pattern matching organ, that if I position my, my life and the way I navigate my life and my goal-oriented structure in the form of metaphor, it is much easier for me. So for example, the metaphor of the mountain to me, because the brain operates in metaphor, I can just click right into that. I can snap link right into that. I believe this is also possible for the end of the year. If you imagine yourself on top of that mountain, another the next mountain with your spouse or your significant other, and you're up there, you've climbed the mountain, you've cleaned up, and you're sitting at a beautiful table with a glass of wine and your favorite food, and you're raising a toast. What will you toast with your significant other? Or what will you toast silently to yourself as you look back across that landscape that you just traversed? What will you raise your glass to in the next year? Allow yourself to go there and immerse in that and experience it. The brain knows what to do. The follow-on question to that is those things that you toast, what's that going to cost you? What will it cost you? Write it down. I, you know, it, it's important to know that if you have goals already in mind, um, identifying the cost ahead of time is a good idea because you can start to mitigate, you can start to have conversations, and you can start to commit. 
And speaking of commitment, my next question is, what is your commitment? What is your commitment to this journey? What is your commitment to answering a tap on the call? Even just speaking it out loud or better yet, writing it down and signing it, this little declaration that you're working on right now, that I am committed to doing this. If life taps me on the shoulder with an opportunity, good or bad, I will treat it as an opportunity for my finest hour. And you'll be surprised how that will condition you at a subconscious level. And then my final question to you is this. How are you going to prepare? How are you going to prepare for the inevitable pivotal moments that are coming your way? You know, I think back on some of the amazing special operators that I had the opportunity to be around. And when those men and women would go in a mission or in houses, they would... Um, they would move through the target with things going off around them. People would be going down, bleeding, hurt, killed. Um, but yet they would still flow through those targets like water. How is that possible? How is it possible for a human being to flow through that kind of chaos and find opportunities that were strategic in nature when everybody else is running around the other way, <laughs> away from it, and things are falling apart in chaos around them? And, and, and the answer is training and preparation. Training is what you do every day, no matter where you are, whether you're in the Marriott or you're in your home. It's a rhythm. It's a regimen. Jocko Willink says it very well. It's that discipline equals freedom. Preparation is what you do from the moment you find you're going to engage on the stage or you're going to have to present to the boss. And it's that diligent focus that you do to take the microphone, influence, and then recover. Both of those are necessary elements in your life. And the more regimented, the more rhythm, the more flow you can achieve, the more open you are to those taps on the shoulder. The more closed off you are, the more you think about life happening to you instead of for you, the more you are in a fear-based state, the more you are in a trance state, the more you do the things that I caution you about in this podcast about letting other divisionist leaders you know, politicize your views and control and polarize you, the more susceptible you are to missing that tap on the shoulder, right? What we do in the darkness, I think it was, was it Spitz that said that? Michael Phelps said this, what we do in the darkness determines what we do in the sunlight and how we train in the darkness determines how we perform in the sunlight. And so I challenge you as you think about this year, regardless of what your technical craft is or you're building a nonprofit, think about it deeply in terms of how you train and prepare and, and finding a sense of flow and rhythm and regimen and discipline in your life on a renewed level. So if you're going to go to the gym, if you're going to take on new habits in 2022 or this year that you're going into, my, my, my encouragement to you would be take them on for the long game so that you stay in a state of flow, a state of rhythm, um, so that you are open and in a parasympathetic state, open to the opportunities, the taps on the shoulder, the pivotal moments that present themselves to you. Because now more than ever in this time of churn, in this time of divisionist leaders, as we saw in the collapse of Afghanistan, nobody else is coming. You know, ultimately that was the thing for me. I had to look at this and go, you know what? Nobody else is coming. I guess I'll lead. And we need that more than ever. Our children need that more than ever. And I encourage you as we go into 22 in this next year to just resolve yourself to that. Resolve yourself to the fact that nobody else is coming. That tap on the shoulder is going to happen. And it's incumbent on you to prepare for what could be your finest hour. Thanks for what you do. Happy New Year. I'll see you on the rooftop.